You're listening to Bible Prophecy Talk on the Revelations Radio Network. Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk and Nowhere to Run. My name is Chris White. Thank you for downloading the show. In this episode, I'm going to talk about a number of things. I'm going to talk about uh, the Russia-Ukraine situation and try to wrestle with that and see if it has anything whatsoever to do with Bible prophecy. I'll also be talking about the Blood Moon situation and a little bit of an update um, on that topic. I've got a little bit of feedback from Mark Biltz, the sort of originator from of the Blood Moon theory. So we're going to talk about some of the things that he said about my arguments and interact a little bit with that. And I've got a few other random topics that I'll talk about, and we'll get into that a little later. But first, a few updates. I have combined Nowhere to Run and Bible Prophecy Talk in this episode, and I will probably continue to do that for a while. I think it helps me to podcast more regularly, which is something that I want to do. Um, For whatever reason, it seems a little overwhelming to me to have so many different podcasts out there and to try to think of content for each one. It's a time issue. It's a number of, of things. So I thought... You know, there's more crossover than I previously thought with these two podcasts, Nowhere to Run and Bible Prophecy Talk. I mean, if I talk about Bible prophecy, that's something that the listeners of Nowhere to Run would certainly benefit from and are used to. The only difference probably is that the Bible Prophecy Talk listeners will get more um, general Christian um, answers to questions or various topics that may, may not directly apply to Bible prophecy, but... Uh, Since they are Christians, I think that they can benefit from a topic or two that may just apply uh, to discipleship or something like that. So that's the only real difference that I think you'll notice. But I think that uh, what you may lose in terms of continuity, you will gain in terms of more podcasts. So, okay, a few more show notes before we get started. I have been putting out some new videos, and I've got a lot more in the works. The most recent one was called The Wars of Antichrist and the Messiah Ben Joseph Connection. And I'll post that on both of the websites uh, very shortly. Basically, it's just a video derived from the audio of a chapter of the book that I've been writing called, well, I have been calling it Anti-Messiah, but I think I've officially changed the name to False Messiah. Nevertheless, that video is up, and I will continue to put out videos like that um, derived from the book as, uh, as the time gets closer to the book being released. And afterwards, the next one that's in the works and should be ready very shortly is from the chapter about the Gog-Magog War and particularly the timing of that war. So stay tuned for more videos and not just videos from the book, but I've got a lot more videos in the works as well. Um, With regard to the book False Messiah, I have finished the writing process of that and it is now sent off to the editor. I probably will have quite a bit more uh, rewriting and different things to do with that before it's ready and so I don't anticipate it being actually available for a few months, but uh, it is the writing process is done and so it gives me a lot more time to do podcasts and other projects that I've been working on. Um, I do plan on podcasting a lot more now that that's done and being a lot more active in terms of social media and those kinds of things. And the final show note before we get started is about an application that I and a friend have been developing for uh, the better part of a year, really. And it's something that helps people memorize scripture in a totally new way using real repeating audio. The idea was something I had quite a long time ago with a a podcast, uh, probably the most successful podcast I've ever done, called Scripture Memory Podcast, 
and the technology is now available for us to actually make that uh, function in a way that was not possible before. So I encourage you to check out the website turboverse.com. It's currently only available for Android devices, but we do plan to have it available for iPhone shortly. It is also only available in the King James version right now, but we do hope to have other versions available soon. So if you have an Android device, I would really appreciate you downloading it, giving me any feedback that you have about it. Um, obviously, any ratings or whatnot on the Google Play Store or the Amazon Store would be helpful as well. So check it out at Turboverse.com. All right, so the first thing I wanted to talk about today is one of these discipleship, non-Bible prophecy um, issues, and it's about Internet pornography and particularly uh, addressing Christians about this. I think that most Christian men are trying to avoid internet pornography and are not a slave to it or anything as they were perhaps when they were before they were saved or whatnot. And I hope that's the case for, for most of us. But um, I think that even, even those that are trying their best to avoid it uh, often slip up from time to time. And I think if you analyze the how, the, how those slip-ups happen we can see that they can be avoided pretty simply. What happens is is you'll be on some site, you know, reading an article or whatever that has nothing to do with anything, and uh, this is especially common nowadays. At the end of the article, there's like 10 uh, picture ads, and some of them are really racy or whatever. Or perhaps you're on Facebook and you see something or an ad or uh, something somebody's posted that that is of whatever, some scantily clad woman or whatever, and it gets your dopamine levels, you know, firing or whatever. And before you know it, you're on autopilot going to to some site you shouldn't be on. And so I think the first step is avoiding that from happening. And that's easy enough to do with um, applications you can get for any internet browser. I use Chrome, but whether you're using Safari or uh, Firefox or Internet Explorer or whatever, you can get these applications that are very easy to download. It's like one click um, and that they, they install on your uh, main web browser. So, for example, I've been using AdBlock, and that just basically does what it says. It blocks any ads on any website. So if there is those kinds of racy ads that are intended to get you to click them by using racy images and whatever, you don't see them. And if you don't see them, you're not off on that rabbit trail that you shouldn't be on. So the first step is ma making sure that you get those ads just totally off your uh, uh, radar. And so I, I encourage you to download an ad blocker, whatever it is. I'm sure that there's lots of different versions out there and different uh, companies that offer that. So, so do that right now if you have the opportunity. Now, if you're on Facebook, it's a different story. If you have a Facebook friend or whatever that posts images or videos that you shouldn't be seeing, you need to be proactive about that. And instead of unfriending the person, whenever you see something, you need to click on that little arrow right next to their post and say, and say something like, I don't want to see this anymore or hide this from me or whatever. And it will basically hide that person's post from you. So you don't have to go through the whole thing of like, you know, unfriending a person or whatever. You just won't see anything that they're posting. Even if they do it one time, that's one time too many. You know, maybe they don't do it all the time. But if you notice somebody doing it, hide that person. It's just not worth it. 
the next thing you need to do, and this is an important second line of defense, is install some kind of parental control software on your computer or router. There's a lot of different versions out there. Some of them are free. You may need to spend $20, $30, $40 to do this. Um, take some time and shop around. Find out what works for you with this kind of stuff. But this is important. You really need to do this. This is a, the digital age, and you need to uh, do this. It's important to realize that we... You know, in the past, if you were a Christian man trying to avoid pornography, it was a lot easier. You just don't go to the store and buy uh, pornography. Or, or in the distant past, you just don't go to the um, temple prostitute or whatever. But nowadays, we are on the Internet, and it's too prevalent. It's too easy. You need to do something about it. And so the second line of defense which is installing parental control software, is a necessary course of action. So um, there's lots of stuff out there. As I mentioned, some of them are at the router level and free. If you have a Netgear uh, router, usually you can <coughs> go straight into your router settings and set it up from there. That way it blocks everything from the, that's trying to access it, like through your phone or whatever as well. But uh, you may need to download the corresponding app to whatever program you eventually go with and then you know go through the settings there you will need to tinker a little bit with the settings first so you'll need to get in there and really understand the settings i want this blocked i don't want this blocked and and you want to uh, make sure you can access all the apps and different stuff that you want to access so you'll need to spend just a little bit of time getting it like you want it and then you need to pull up the password and hand over the computer or whatever to somebody else and say hey, would you come up with a password that I don't know for this so you don't have access to uninstalling the program, you don't have access to doing whatever. <clears throat> this isn't a perfect solution, but it does help you to, uh, as a second line of defense um, to come to your senses. And I think that's an important line of defense for all of us. There are lots of reasons to avoid Internet pornography. It's just, it's one of these things that is a direct command from the Lord. You know, not... To look upon another woman with lust in your heart. And that's exactly what's happening um, with this. And I think one of the best reasons to avoid it is because it seems to dis diminish your uh, relationship with God. I mean, you really do, um, as you indulge in it, God becomes less clear to you. It become, he becomes uh, more distant. Not that he's moving away from you because he's angry, but because you're moving away from him, in a sense. And this is an important part of discipleship, is staying close to the Lord. And pornography makes us distant from him. And it's of our own doing, and it's something that he said not to do. So as disciples, we need to be proactive in this digital age. So I encourage you to get on this and to make it happen. All right, let's move on to Mark Biltz's response to my video called The Blood Moon Theory Debunked. As many of you may know, Mark Biltz is sort of the originator of the blood moon theory. He's the guy that came up with this quite a long time ago, uh, and it's since been picked up by John Hagee and a lot of others. In fact, most of the uh, top-selling Bible prophecy books that are out there have something or another to do with the blood moon theory. So it's a wildly popular theory. The video that I did uh, debunked a number of aspects of the blood moon theory, which are going to probably become clear as we talk about this. But uh, um, it was about a month ago, on April 14th, that the first of these tetrads occurred. These tetrads are supposedly 
going to occur over the course of the next two years, basically, which I put out a post saying, you know, at what point can we say the blood moon theory was wrong? Do we have to wait until all four of these eclipses happen to say conclusively that this was wrong and we should all move on? But uh, nevertheless, um, we'll talk about that as we get into it. So what I'm going to do is go point by point on this and discuss what he said. What he said appears in a Facebook post from 119 Ministries, which is kind of a Hebrew roots website. And they posted this on Facebook and said that Mark Biltz said this about the video that I did. I can't find any reference to him saying this on uh, his website or anything like that. So I'm just going to assume that what 119 Ministries said that Mark Biltz said about the video uh, is accurate. And if anybody's really interested in this, I would encourage them to stop this podcast right now, go watch or listen to the audio from the Blood Moon Theory debunked that I did, and it will really help you sort of uh, understand the point-counterpoint that we're about to engage in. Okay, so the first thing he says is, the speaker of this video said that Joel 2.10 happens in conjunction with verse 31 of the same chapter. This is not the case. Verse 10 is regarding the return of Yeshua, just like Matthew 24:29. But verse 231 is an event that happens before Yeshua's return. Consider Joel 2:10, which says, Before them the earth shakes, the sky trembles, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars no longer shine. Context shows that this is regarding the actual return. Joel 2:31 says, The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord context shows that this is regarding something before the return there are actually few verses that a few verses that mention the red moon here is one of them revelation 6:12 i watched as he opened the sixth seal there was a great earthquake the sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair the whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to earth as late figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind Again, the blood moon is indeed mentioned here, yet it is not talking about the return of Yeshua. Verse 15 and 16 show the kings and generals hiding in caves at this event. Yet at the return of Yeshua, they are clearly gathered for the battle of Armageddon against Yeshua. That's a big difference. The speaker also said that Matthew 24 speaks about the blood moons, but they are not mentioned here at all. Matthew 24:29. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heaven, heavenly bodies shall be shaken. The speaker assumes that Matthew 24:29 is the day of the blood moons is the day the blood moons are to happen, but this is not the case. Matthew 24:29 is talking about the actual return of Yeshua. The prophecy of the blood moons is talking about an event that happens before his return, not at his return itself. He also refers to Ezekiel 32:7 and 8 as when all this happens. However, these verses are also talking about the day of the return of Yeshua and not some day or event that happens before it. It seems that he is very adamant and even demeaning in his presentation in saying that Biltz needs to explain these verses that says everything will be turned dark and not just the moon to blood, when in actuality he is the one in error trying to make these scriptures regarding the return of Yeshua one and the same with the event of the blood moon. The scriptures are clear in showing that they are two different events. Okay, before I get started, I want to say that this type of argument that Biltz is making here is by far the most prevalent kind of criticism I received from the video, The Blood Moon Theory Debunked. The argument is, you know, picking and choosing which of these verses can be used. You know, you can't use that Matthew 24 verse because it's not talking about the same one that Bills is talking about, and so on. And 
part of me wishes I'd never even brought up those other verses because uh, I knew that they were contentious, particularly uh, people have different versions of the rapture and they can't actually connect some of these verses uh, because of that rapture doctrine. For example, um, most versions of the rapture can't have Revelation 6, blood, moon, stars, sign, event, be the same one as Matthew 24 because it throws the rapture doctrine totally out of whack. And um, I wish I'd never said that because I didn't want to get into that debate here. I, I think that they are talking about the same event, uh, and I could argue that, but it's not necessary. So I wish I'd never brought it up because the point that I was trying to make still totally stands, a point that he never even addressed. The issue is that if you only take the verses that he thinks are talking about the uh, his blood moon event, it still has, for example, the stars going dark, as well as the sun and the moon, as well as an earthquake. My point was that if you have not just a lunar eclipse happening, in, in these verses that he's calling the blood moon theory, if you have the sun going dark, the moon going dark, the stars going dark, and an earthquake, it's not the same thing as four lunar eclipses occurring over two years. It's just not, it doesn't match up with what the Bible's saying. The Bible is describing universal darkness. Um, you can make the case, I think the grammar, and there's been an article recently that shows that the grammar is saying that this stuff is happening at the same time. This blood moon event will include the sun going dark, the moon going dark, the stars going dark, and an earthquake. It seems to suggest they're all happening at the same time. That's what the plain reading of this would uh, would uh, say. But even if you wanted to say, well, you can kind of fool around with it and make it be four eclipses over two years but even if you did that, you still have to find a way to make all the stars go dark. Because you can't do that with a lunar eclipse. There's nothing that makes all the stars go dark. And you can't obviously have a, a solar eclipse and a lunar eclipse at the same time because it's physically impossible. Just look at why solar eclipses happen and then look at why lunar eclipses happen. They can't happen at the same time. But even if you tried to argue that what the Bible is saying is not occurring at the same time, which I think is a foolhardy argument to make, but an argument that you have to make if you believe in the blood moon theory. You still have to explain the absence of, of the stars going dark as a, as a result of this, as well as an earthquake and, and all the rest of it. So I want to address the last thing that he said to sort of demonstrate how much he's avoiding the argument here. He says that he keeps saying that Biltz needs to explain these verses that say everything will be turned dark and not just the moon to blood. Okay, that's the argument that I want him to address. How come all these other things are happening and not just a lunar eclipse? And then he says this, When actuality, he is the one in error, trying to make these scriptures regarding the return of Yeshua one and the same with the event of the blood moon. So let's break that down. In this very same criticism of me, he says that he believes, for example, that Revelation 6.12 is referring to his blood moon event. Revelation 6.12 includes the universal darkness idea. It has the sun going dark, the moon going dark, and all the stars going dark, as well as an earthquake. So he knows that his version of the blood moon includes all the things that I'm talking about, regardless of if I quote Matthew 24 or whatever, the ones that he believes are a part of his blood moon event include this idea. So it's not as if he gets to say, look, I don't have to address this idea of universal darkness um, not matching up with the lunar eclipse idea because none of the verses that I believe contain the universal darkness idea. He doesn't get to argue that. The verses that he believes do contain the universal darkness, he just says, I'm not going to address it because you also think Matthew 24 is a part of this. 
So the first argument that he makes in this criticism is totally moot. He doesn't actually address the issue, and it's basically a rabbit trail that has more to do with the rapture debate than anything else. Okay, this is his second point. He says, The speaker also says that the accuracy of the blood moons are of no significance, as the past events near the blood moons only shows them relatively close, and even before the blood moons on some of the events, then showing that there were only that there were two tetrads that did not match any event in history that we know of, which makes the ones that are close seem virtually a coincidence. The point here is this. This guy is trying to debunk this theory because of what appears to be inconsistency thus far, when in reality, these could have been what's given to us to look at for the ones that may have consistency. There's only one event in prophecy that deals with a blood moon. There are not several events. Thus, since these events in the past that were only close to the blood moons are not on the days themselves, truly means nothing. We are looking for one event. We are not looking for many. The Father could have very well used these close events that fall before these tetrads in 2014 and 15 to grab the attention of his people to look for the one that is truly prophesied. This individual's arguments really don't stand when looking at everything from an overall look at these blood moons. Okay, I think this argument is extremely telling uh, for a lot of reasons. First of all, he's essentially agreeing with all my criticisms of these past uh, uh, blood moon events on Jewish holidays. Uh, my criticism was that, number one, they don't fall on any of the days of the events that are supposedly supposed to have happened. Um, and they often, in fact, always appear after the event. So, for example, let's take the Spanish Inquisition. The Spanish Inquisition happened. Jews are being persecuted for a year before the first of these eclipses happened. So it, it certainly can't be a warning for the people that are about to be persecuted because they're already knee-deep in the Spanish Inquisition and have been for a year before the first eclipse happened. So seeing an eclipse did them absolutely no good. It certainly can't be a warning. And all of these quote-unquote tetrads uh, follow this same example, whether it's you know closer to a year, or seven months, five months, whatever. They're always after the event, so they're not warnings of anything. The second thing that he agrees with is that there are actually two sets of tetrads that don't apply to anything in history. And I can't explain how significant this is of an admission from him. Lunar eclipses on these Jewish holidays are exceedingly common. We're not talking about uh, a few. We're talking about hundreds and hundreds of eclipses fall on these exact same Jewish holidays and have over the course of hundreds of years. And the reason they're so common on these two Jewish holidays is because the Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar. The way that uh, you know they start the calendar with the new moon, and because their Jewish holidays occurs 14 to 15 days later, which is when lunar eclipses generally occur, it's exceedingly common that eclipses fall on these Jewish holidays. And he knows that, so he's kind of like, yeah, yeah, okay, so they're really common. But maybe two eclipses within two years, that's really, really common too. So he scraps that and says... Well, what about triads, you know, three eclipses within a two-year period? Well, that's really common, too, because there's so many eclipses. What about four eclipses within uh, a two-year period? That's the one that the Bible's talking about. Whenever there's four, that's, that's a significant event. So he comes up with this idea of tetrads on these Jewish holidays. That's what we're looking for. That's the, the Bible event. But the problem with that is there's actually two sets of tetrads that didn't have anything to do with it. So even though he's narrowed it down to the only ones that we actually pay attention to are four lunar eclipses within two years, we actually have four <laughs> lunar eclipses within two years, that he, two of them, that he doesn't even deal with. Two sets of tetrads that he doesn't deal with. And here he's admitting, yeah, okay, so even even this 
artificial distinction of tetrads being the important thing, not biads or triads, only tetrads, of those tetrads, he still throws away two. So these are really significant admissions from him. So this is what he says about that. He says, this guy is trying to debunk this theory because of what appears to be inconsistency thus far, when in reality, these could have been what's given to us to look at for the ones that may have consistency. Okay, so he's basically admitting none of the other ones worked. They didn't fall in the days. They weren't warnings. They occurred well after the event. He's admitting, essentially, that there is no real consistency with any of the prior ones that happened. Yet he's saying maybe we're supposed to go to NASA's website and look for these tetrads, even though they didn't work in the past. Maybe they will work in the future. This is a really, really telling argument. He's essentially admitting none of it worked, but maybe it will in the future. Look, I think this event is going to happen in Revelation 6.12 or wherever. Um, we're going to see the sun and moon and stars go dark as well as an earthquake happen. That's a prophesied event that will happen. But we don't go to NASA's website looking for tetrads or triads or biads or anything to do with lunar eclipses to figure out when this event is going to happen. If this was any other kind of discipline, you would look at the theory, the hypothesis that he's making, and see it's failed every other time. You wouldn't say, well, it's going to work this next time. Okay, before I get into this next one, I need to make a distinction. I'm not sure if this is exactly what Mark Bilt said or not, this post from 119 Ministries. It says in their preface to this, it says, however, here are some thoughts regarding this teaching that supposedly debunks the blood moon theory from Pastor Mark Bilt's. So it sounds like they're about to quote from Mark Bilt's, but um, throughout the course of this, they're, they're referring to Mark Bilt's in the third person. I don't think he would do that, so I'm not sure if this is their argument or whatever, but... Uh, nevertheless, let's go into the next point. It says, The speaker then tr appears to belittle the significance of these events happening on or near the feast days of Yahweh. He shows from an article from Answers in Genesis showing it is not uncommon for all these blood moons to happen on the feast days as the calendar of Yahweh is a solar lunar calendar. He says that since this is the case, it is only expected that these types of events would happen on the feast days as they center around the first and middle of the months. What this individual is missing is that this just shows that we are looking to Yahweh's calendar and not that which the world follows. Yeshua's first coming lined up perfectly with the spring feast days, and likewise his return will line up with the fall feast days as well. He refers to these eclipses happening 37 times on feast days in the 20th century alone. However, what this individual is missing is that all four of these particular tetrads fall extremely close within the time of the feast days in these two years. This is a rarity that Mark Biltz, or that Pastor Biltz is trying to bring out. It is very common to have one or two of these tetrads to fall close to the feast days, and it is not that uncommon to have all three as well. But it is the issue of all four happening within the scope of the feast days that seems to make these tetrads special, as this is more rare. It is not that this hasn't happened before, just that these are rare. I believe this is what Pastor Biltz is trying to show. Yet, what this individual doesn't say is that the 37 tetrads that he refers to does not ha have all four of each tetrad landing within the, uh, within the time of the feast days. Sometimes only one or two or even three are represented in the 37 that he mentions. Okay, so let's expand this a little bit. I'm going to quote a little from Elliot Nesh's article about the blood moons on April 25th, 2014. So... If we just were looking at tetrads, again, not just um, not just uh, lunar eclipses that occurred on Jewish holidays. Those are a dime a dozen. There's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of eclipses that occurred on Jewish holidays. So we're throwing all those away. We're only dealing with tetrads, um, lunar eclipses 
four lunar eclipses that occur within two years of one another. Just with that distinction alone, we have 62 tetrads that have occurred since the first century. But we're going to narrow it down even further. We're only looking at those tetrads which coincided with Passover and Sukkot. And when we do that, we have eight tetrads that have coincided with the Feast of Passover and Sukkot. And if you want to narrow that down even further, and you want to make sure that every single one of these eclipses occurred on a Jewish holiday, then you still have two sets of tetrads that are completely dismissed by Mark Biltz. So they make the argument, what do they say here? They say, it's not that this hasn't happened before, just that they are rare. So they're making this artificial scarcity. Certainly, lunar eclipses on Jewish holidays are exceedingly common because that's the way the Jewish calendar works. But you can't write a book about that because you've got hundreds and hundreds of eclipses on Jewish holidays that had nothing to do with anything. So no books can be written there. And you can't even do that with two lunar eclipses on Jewish holidays because they occur all the time too. So throw those out. What about three? Well, they happen all the time too. Well, what about four? Four lunar eclipses on Jewish holidays. That's the only ones that we're going to pay attention to. Okay, we've made this super, super artificial scarcity. Now we're still going to throw away two sets of tetrads that match this exact same criteria because they don't match up with anything. In this particular thing, they're referring to me saying that 37 lunar eclipses on Jewish holidays occurred in the 20th century alone. Um, and I wasn't saying that all four, all 37 of those were tetrads. They're trying to nitpick and say, well, of those 37 in the last 20th century. But like I'm trying to say here, if we just deal with tetrads that have occurred since the first century, we're dealing with 62 tetrads, and eight of those all fell on Jewish holidays. So, you know, the the point is, is that regardless of how you slice this, and they've tried to slice it as, as fine as they could, it's still not, as they admitted, it's still, you know, rare, but it does happen. And in those cases, they just dismiss them if they don't actually uh, line up with anything. Okay, I know I've probably bored everyone to tears here with this discussion, so we'll move on to the next point. But I do want to, uh, uh, you know, ask anybody out there that if they want to organize a debate or something between myself and Mark Biltz, I would love to do it. Uh, if you want to have just some kind of open discussion where we can do a point-counterpoint, I would love to engage Mark Biltz about the Blood Moon Theory. My personal view is that this is this is just like the 2012 stuff or the Comet Elenin or the... Planet X scares or all this other stuff that we have as, uh, you know, the sort of conspiracy minded Christian community have uh, engaged with and told our friends about and made a big deal about. And it just never comes to pass. And it's here's the issue. It's not based on what the Bible is saying. And when we tell people that the Bible says this or the Bible says that is going to happen. And here's our proof, because look at common Ellen and all this other stuff then we are making uh, ourselves and the Bible look stupid. And it's not something that the Bible said. We can discover the truth about Bible prophecy if we stay true to the Bible and we don't um, uh, put our own presuppositions on the text or don't desire so much for uh, the return of Christ or whatever that we're willing to sort of cut corners and say things that the Bible didn't say in order to you know, have these kinds of conclusions. We need to also recognize that when somebody sets a date like this, or when somebody comes up with a theory that has some kind of concrete thing to look for, then it, it we as uh, you know human beings gravitate toward it. 
I don't know why, but it's just it's the one way to make sure you get all kinds of press and interest and and hype is by setting some kind of uh, uh, date for whatever it is. Um, you know, that's why the May 21st, 2011 thing was so big is because just some dude put up a date. His argumentation was ridiculous if you actually looked at what he was saying, but it didn't, it didn't matter. It had uh, gravitas because the guy set a date on something. So, uh, I want to discuss this for the purpose of, uh, helping people to see that you can discover Bible prophecy with a good hermeneutic, but this is not how we do it. Okay, let's move on to the next point, which is about Russia and the situation with uh, the Ukraine and Crimea. And does this have anything to do with Bible prophecy? So I put out two podcasts recently that are relevant to this. Um, Well, a lot of them that are relevant to this recently, but notable ones are the part one and part two of the Gog-Magog War. The first part, I'm talking about the timing of the Gog-Magog War. And the second part, I talk about the players. That's kind of necessary listening to fully understand what I'll be talking about here. But the thing is that people are saying, well, look at this stuff going on. Surely this is a part of Russia and that, uh, you know, and Bible prophecy and the end is near and the rest of it. So I'm going to argue from two different angles. Uh, The first is from a biblical angle. There are two places that people say that Russia is in view in Bible prophecy. Daniel 11, 40 through 45 and then also uh, in Ezekiel 38 and 39 with the Gog-Magog War. These are two separate prophecies. It's really, really difficult to make them be the same thing, because, uh, first of all, you've got the bad guy winning in Daniel 11, or 40 through 45. I mean, he's defeating everybody. Uh, so the bad guy wins in Daniel 11, 40, uh, 40 through 45, for the most part. And in Gog-Magog, in Ezekiel 38 and 39, the bad guy is definitely losing. And not to mention the players aren't right and a whole bunch of different stuff. Most people would say they're two distinct prophecies. There are uh, a minority of people that say that they're the same thing, but that's really uh, so few to be inconsequential. But um, there are two places that people say Russia is involved. So in Daniel 11, uh, 40 through 45, they say that Russia is the king of the north. And I often refer to a paper by Dr. J. Paul Tanner called Daniel's King of the North, Do We Owe Russia an Apology? This is mostly something that Hal Lindsey just kind of came up with and said that Russia was in view because it said the King of the North. And, well, Russia's in the North, so he must be the King of the North. But it ignores, um, and he wrote that during the Cold War, you know, so it's so it had that kind of seriousness to it. Um, but the point is, is that the King of the North in Daniel 11 is always referred to throughout the entire chapter. There's absolutely no distinction. We know exactly who the king of the north is in Daniel 11. And that is uh, what we would refer to as the Seleucid Empire, uh, one of Alexander the Great's generals, you know, this this area that that modern day, I guess you could say, uh, Syria, Iraq, Iran, some Afghanistan thrown in there. Just let's call it a coalition of Arab countries. Just not... Russia. It's it's a coalition of what would now today be Arab countries. The King of the North is just not Russia. We know that now. There was never really any good reason to think that the King of the North in Daniel 11, 40 through, 5, uh, 40 through 45, was Russia, except for just Hal Lindsey sort of saying that it was. Um, so that's almost totally dismissed. So the first one is concrete. The second part is referring to Gog Magog, is Russia involved in that coalition? 
And that's a little less concrete for reasons that I discussed in part two of the Gog Magog podcasts. And I went through that, and I guess before I go into that, I should say that in part one of the Gog Magog podcast, I discussed the timing of the Gog Magog War. And I'm convinced and make several arguments in that podcast that the Gog-Magog War happens at the end of the millennium, explicitly. I mean, it's the only, the only timing, exact timestamp we know for sure when a Gog-Magog War happens is after the millennium, according to Revelation 20. And that's after Jesus has been ruling on earth for a thousand years. Satan is then released one last time. He gathers nations, it explicitly says Gog and Magog, to gather them, gather them to battle against the, uh, you know, the blessed city or whatever. So we know explicitly that a Gog-Magog war occurs at the end of the millennium. And my argument is that that is also the Gog-Magog war. And all the elements make sense if you apply that to it. I go point by point and make a lot of arguments and counter-arguments and so on. So I personally don't think that the Gog-Magog War is anything we need to be looking for. And it's quite possible that any of the the nations named there um, won't have any correlation to the nations that they that will be there when uh, when this actually happens at least a thousand years from now. Besides, most of the nations that are mentioned there, we'd know where they are. Uh, it says Persia, which we know is Iran. Nobody would contest that. We know when it says Cush and Put, they're, they're referring to an area around uh, the Sudan um, and uh, Ethiopia and Etria and stuff like that, as well as Libya and other countries, mo- basically most of northwest Africa. So we know a lot of countries concretely that nobody would argue about that are involved in the Gog-Magog War. There are some that are disputed, particularly the Northern Coalition, which includes Meshach, Tubal, and, uh, and uh, Magog, and these kinds of nations. And I argue in that chapter that I have a unique uh, ability to, to discover where those nations are, not because of anything personally, but because I don't have a dog in this fight, you could say, because I do believe that the Gog-Magog War isn't something we need to be looking for, and it's at least a thousand years from now. When I do that study, I don't have to force Russia into it. I don't have to force Islam into it. I don't have to force any, you know, the Roman Catholic Church into it. I don't have to do anything uh, because of a previous superstition or, or position. I get to just study what scripture says about it, what history says about it, and let the chips fall where they may. So I feel like I have a unique ability to to shoot straight with deciding uh, where these uh, these nations like Magog and Tubal and Meshach, where they are. And I found that just about everybody is playing fast and loose with the text in order to make their version be accurate. And what I discovered is that, for example, Meshach and Tubal are almost uncontested. I mean, Nobody, even the people that think it's Russia, would argue that Meshach and Tubal are is a very specific area uh, that are even called that today. I mean, for the most part, well, maybe not today, but uh, very recently, we were still called like Tabal and uh, uh, Moshea, south of the Caucasus Mountains. Basically, it's a very small area. The Bible says that this is an area Meshach and Tubal were trading with Tyre. Um, during Ezekiel's day with copper and stuff like that. These are the same areas that developed bronze, were famous for developing bronze and trading it with Tyre during the day. Um, every map of every Bible scholar is going to put Meshach and Tubal almost in the exact same place as Magog and whatever. And it's a very small region in eastern Turkey, a little bit of Georgia, a little bit of uh, uh, Armenia, but it's a very small area. And here's the deal. It's not in Russia. 
So there's a long and sort of, you know, drawn out argument of how people try to make that be Russia and whatever. And there's, you know, a lot of things people say about it, <clears throat> but I don't even think it matches with the people that are saying it's all in Turkey or whatever, because really that place that it's being talked about, they're not Islamic nations for the most part. I mean, Turkey sort of is, but uh, it's really not that much of an Islamic country. I mean, it's more secular than anything else. Certainly not Georgia or, or Armenia. They're definitely not, you know, they're mostly Christian nations. In fact, a majority in the case of uh, uh, of, of some of them. So they're not. They're not either. They're not Islam today, and they're not Russia today. It's neither, and so it doesn't really have a lot of appeal for people that are trying to force the issue with this particular prophecy. Um, so what I would say first of all is that Gog, that Russia is not involved in Gog Magog. The main thing that people will say is it says well, it says from the uttermost parts of the north, and we know the uttermost must mean as far north as you can go. But I mean, if you really look at that phrase uttermost, and you get into the Hebrew and everything, it's just talking about the far north. And this area was as far north as it got. I mean, this is this is the outskirts of the known northern world. In Ezekiel's day, it is a perfect match and all that. You don't have to read so much into the uttermost parts of the north that you have to go to the North Pole. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's something that is a very flimsy argument, especially in light of when you get into the history and stuff like that. The main argument that people have from history about that is, you know, Josephus saying that uh, Magog and these different areas uh, were where the Scythians were, and, they, and the Scythians—it's hard to say, but because the Scythians were a nomadic tribe, but they existed in uh, southern Russia and things like that. But the problem with that is that what Josephus is referring—he basically said the Greeks called them the Scythians, and the Greeks used the term Scythians as well as them at the time used it very generally to refer to those particular nomadic tribes. And you can actually get into the details, and I do this in the uh, in the study, to show that it's specifically referred to as that tribe that lived in the very same area that we're talking about right now, the Meshach and Tubal and everything else in the in eastern Turkey, a little bit of Georgia, a little bit of Armenia, not in Russia. Okay, so I can say from, from my study with, with confidence that we're not dealing with Russia. And um, I go through that in that podcast. But... I know that's not going to convince anybody because there's just too much baggage floating around for people to dismiss that altogether. It's just such a part of uh, of our uh, psyche, as I mentioned, that this Hal Lindsey hangover that most of Christendom has, premillennial Christendom has, that they're just not willing to to relinquish that. So let's just go from the other angle. The other and second part of this argument is: Does it have anything to do with what's being talked about in the Gog Magog War? And the answer is absolutely not. Uh, if you look at this just from a strategic geopolitical perspective, it makes really good sense. Russia is playing a, a, a really fine game in which they're uh, basically trying to get a hold of a seaport, which is their only way to get goods into Russia that doesn't freeze over in the winter. And they've always had to have this seaport, and that's why Crimea was involved in this. Wars have been passed, and for the same reason. They need a southern seaport that doesn't freeze over, and it's really important to their economy and for other reasons and so on. They knew that they couldn't um, do this with a NATO country because of the, the, the way that NATO works. They can't, they can't get places uh, that are NATO countries because the, you, 
a NATO country by its definition means that everybody has to go to war with a nation that is a NATO nation that it's attacked. That's the reason why basically World War One happened, not because of NATO, but because of treaties that forced, for example, Britain to get involved when Germany uh, attacked Belgium. So we don't want that to happen. And it's important from a geopolitical perspective to realize that they didn't do that. They didn't attack a NATO country and they didn't do that by accident. They did everything that for the most part is they have a they can say legally uh you know with a straight face that they did this on the up and up now there's i'm not endorsing them i'm not saying that they they're good people or this was the right move or whatever but they played a pretty smart game with being able to do this really important thing they are not however doing what is supposed to happen as a result of the Gog-Magog War or leading up to it. They're not gathering these specific nations like all of northern Africa, for example, and getting them together to go to battle against Israel. Okay, if Russia was doing that, you know, if they were they were making all these leagues with all these nations specifically mentioned in the Gog-Magog War besides the Northern Coalition and saying, hey guys, let's get together, we're going to go at- attack Israel. Um, that would be a whole different thing. But this just all this is is just Russia in the news, and because of our Hal Lindsey hangover, we're saying, Russia's in the news, oh my gosh, the end is near, the end is near. I don't care really what the Bible has to say about it, I just know that Russia is important, and so um, I'm going to freak out about it. So so I think that uh, the whole argument is, is nonsense for lots of reasons. Number one, the Gog-Magog War, in my view, is not something we need to be worried about for at least another thousand years. Secondly, Russia is not involved in the uh, King of the North and Daniel or the Gog-Magog coalition uh, in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And thirdly, that it has nothing to do, like the geopolitical stuff that's going on, has nothing to do with what the Bible says is going to happen to this uh, as a result of this war or leading up to this war. So, So, no, I just don't think it has anything to do with it. It kind of goes like back to the blood moon thing that we need to stop being so sensational about this stuff. If everybody's looking at the Bible with squinted eyes, saying, you know, if you really, really squint your eyes, it can we can force this to happen. And for whatever macabre reason, we can go tell people that the end is near. And I understand sometimes that's really genuine. People are looking for the Lord's return and they wish all this stuff would just go hurry up and happen so it can all, uh, you know, come to pass or whatever. But it's it's at the uh, what you're doing is is making it, you know, this whole thing look stupid and Christians look sensational. And it's been happening for a long time. And it's all a result of us not being true to the text. If the Bible doesn't say it, then we shouldn't say it. And we should be more reverent to the Bible and be better students of the Bible. So at least we're able to say, no, you know, I'm I'm willing to entertain it. But the Bible, as it's wont to do, will give certain criteria about an event that says, well, that can't happen because that hasn't happened or that doesn't apply to this. Or if the Bible is giving you a reason to say, look, it's, it, you know, don't believe that, then you ought not believe it. But anyway, that's my little rant about the Russia and Ukraine situation and does it have anything to do with Bible prophecy. Okay, that's it for this episode. I want to remind people about some of the updates. We've got some new videos coming out, new podcasts. Uh, The book should be out in a few months. Go to Turboverse.com if you have an Android device and want to help us kind of test out the the new app. Uh, That's Turboverse.com. I talked about 
um, how to avoid internet pornography. I talked about getting a an ad blocker on your um, on your web browser. Then I talked about getting you know some kind of parental control software like NetNanny or or some of these others that are out there, or doing something with your router. Just shop around, figure out what you need to do about that. I talked about the Blood Moon situation and talked about my responses to Mark Biltz and all that. And then finally I mentioned the Russia-Ukraine situation and how I personally think it has absolutely nothing to do with Bible prophecy. Thanks for listening to this episode, and I will see you guys later. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you would like a free copy of the Christianity 101 DVD, which contains 8 gigabytes of audio, video, and text of various discipleship materials on a data DVD, please go to any one of my websites and look for the Christianity 101 button. It's totally free and I'll ship it to you wherever you are in the world. If you would like to support this ministry or any of the others that I do, please consider a tax-deductible donation, which can be sent by PayPal using the email chris at chriswhiteministries.com or by clicking the PayPal button on any one of my websites. Another great way to support this ministry is by writing a review of the podcast on iTunes or writing a review of my books on Amazon. Reviews figure very prominently into the ranking algorithms of both of those websites, and the higher they rank, the more people that can be reached. Thanks for your time and for subscribing to this feed.